0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be uh, walking through the first 14 verses of this passage this morning. Initially, I thought I'd get through verse 22 today, and then I realized as I was looking at it this week that that wasn't going to happen. So we're just going to get through verse 14 today, and we'll dive into verses 15 and following beginning next week. This morning, we're going to consider a very important question. What is it that you should wear to a wedding? What you should wear to a wedding. As we walk through this passage, we'll see this central idea that the only acceptable clothing in God's kingdom is actually Christ, is Jesus, to be robed in Jesus himself. So if you have your Bible, follow along, please. I'll read starting in Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen." Before we dive in here, is audio okay? I can't can't tell. Is it echo or are you good? Give me a thumbs up if you're good. All right, we're good. All right, thank you. Well, if there are any important questions when it comes to planning a wedding, what to wear has to be close to the top of the list. But if there's a question that's harder to figure out than kind of what you want to wear, you know, whether you're in the bridal party or a guest, is it formal, is it informal, uh, where it's going to be, what time of year it is, is who you invite to the wedding. In fact, as I think back to my own wedding some 13 and a half years ago, that was one of the main questions of the wedding planning process. Like, who do you invite? And so as we're going through this, you know, you've got uh, multiple families with, with multiple opinions about who should be invited, aunts, uncles, friends, guests, church, whatever. You, you could end up, you know, with thousands upon thousands of people there, which you can't afford. And so, so how, how do you walk through this? And what we have here this morning is really a process of inviting A particular set of people to a wedding, and also what those people wear. Well, the passage that Chris read a little while ago anticipates this, and this passage anticipates what comes in Revelation chapter 19. When you get to the end of history, we find ourselves at a wedding, but that wedding feels more like a worship service. Listen to these verses from Revelation 19. John writes, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. On that day, there's a wedding and there's a feast And that's the reunion of Christ, the bridegroom, with his bride, the church, as he brings us home. Here in Matthew 22, Jesus tells a story anticipating that day. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I really don't track the British royal family. That ain't my thing, but if you're alive today, there are times when you cannot miss it. In fact, in the past year, you may have seen... Uh, There's some to do with Harry and Meghan. If you don't know who they are, you can look it up. But Prince Harry and Meghan, about kind of distancing themselves a little bit from the royal family. But if you track back with me nine years ago, the original prince getting married was Prince William. And he married a lady named Kate Middleton. Now on this day when they got married, the cost of this wedding in round figures was $34 million dollars. Now, no matter what wedding you're planning, I doubt it's going to cost you upwards of 34 million dollars. Now, I think the great majority of that was actually security details for the wedding, but it was this gargantuan cost for this wedding day. Now, imagine that it's 2011. You're sitting at your table on a Saturday afternoon, maybe having lunch. You've just mowed the lawn. You're sitting there, and you see the mail has come. You walk out, you pick up your mail, you walk back in, and you're kind of flipping through junk, 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 and there on your table is an envelope. And this envelope is a little bit different. It's sealed with wax and imprinted on this wax seal is the crest of the British royal family. You think, that's rather unusual. You open up the envelope, look inside, and lo and behold, you have received an invitation. You're on your way to William and Kate's wedding. Now, even if you don't follow the British royal family, you would accept an expenses paid invitation to the wedding just to say you'd gone. But what we find here in Matthew 22 is a bunch of people invited to the royal wedding, and they don't want to go. The first group of people is the guests who will not come, verses 1 through 7. Now, the king invites these people, and he's remarkably patient about this. He issues an invitation to them, verse 3, but they wouldn't come. All right, uh, maybe that wasn't clear. So in verse four, he tries again. He sweetens the pot by telling them, the reception is going to be amazing. He tells them about the food. See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen. My fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Y'all, come on. Now, this word for dinner is, is, is a word that means breakfast. It's the first meal of the day. What he's saying is, this is just the first part. This is the appetizer. Listen to how amazing this is. And, and, and good wedding feasts in the first century last for days or weeks. So you will be missing out if you don't come to this amazing meal. But again, the guests, verse five, ignore the invitation. They paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. I mean, look how terrible these excuses are. It's, it's like being asked out on a date. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not available that night. I have to check my email. I mean, they don't even have. They're literally mowing their lawn. Going, they, they have no good excuse, no reason to to miss this wedding. But then, in verse six, some other guests take it a step further. The rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So the messengers show up with a grace, gracious invitation: come to the wedding but they treat them shamefully. This is a word that shows how outrageous, this is unbelievable. They would treat someone being hospitable this way. Then they kill the messengers. Now, I don't care how badly you don't like the person who invites you to their wedding. This is not an appropriate way to respond. You don't respond to a wedding invitation by killing the messenger. So in verse seven, the patient king turns from gracious king to warrior king. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, there's a part of this that feels appropriate. The murderers are condemned to death for their crimes against these innocent messengers. These guests won't come, but there's a second group that guests who come, verses 8 through 10. So, the first group are those people who make the guest list, Now, we are sitting here, and we know we don't get invitations to royal weddings unless there's something going on here that I don't know about. Like, I'm not going to receive an invitation to the next royal wedding. But verse 3, the king sent his servants to call those who were invited. Verse 4, those who were invited. Verse 8, those invited. So, the focus is on inviting a specific group of guests, the people who make the cut. But the second invitation is much broader verse 9 Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find These main roads are literally uh, the, the street corners people where intersections where people would pe- go to beg because people are passing by or they'd go there and look for work in 2016, I took a missions trip to the Republic of Georgia. This is not the state south of here. It's overseas. It's, it's, a, it's a country where they literally have no economy, so people don't work. There are a few people in the country who have money. No one else does. There's, there's no economy to speak. You kind of farm or you kind of go subsistence living. Well, one of my enduring images of traveling through that country was as you drive down streets and cities and villages, the streets are lined with people, mostly men and they're standing there, and what they're doing is hoping some truck, somebody will come by and offer them work for that day. They're literally looking for work for a day. There's nothing to do, so they sit there waiting, hoping someone will come by and offer them something to do. Well, those are the people that the king invites now. It's the people standing by the road with nothing to do. They're certainly not the elite. This is a whoever wants to can come kind of invitation. I mean, the people sitting by the road looking for work or money aren't the kind of people you invite to a royal wedding. Well, to emphasize how broad this invitation is, verse 10 tells us they went out into the roads, gathered all whom they found, and they weren't even very selective. They gathered both bad and good. So it doesn't matter if you're good, bad, or ugly, you can come. The invitation is open to all, so in verse 10, the wedding hall now is filled with guests. So Let's follow Jesus' pattern here. First, there's a targeted invitation to a specific group of people, people who make the cut. When they refuse to come now, there's a broadcast, open invitation to anyone who wants to come, not selective at all. So we've shifted the focus, so we've shifted from a specific focus group to anyone can come. Well, the parable can end here, but Jesus goes a step further in verses 11 11- 314, we can't forget what to wear. So we've taken care of the guest list. What is it that you should wear to a royal wedding? Well, in verse 11, the king comes in to check out the party, and he looks around, and this place is packed. It's, It's full of people, but there's one man in particular who stands out. Now, it doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, good, bad, ugly. It doesn't matter. You can be there, but you do need the right clothes. Now, as part of my responsibilities here, really, in any church, but, you know, weddings and funerals kind of fall into that. And uh, this past week, as many of you know, we uh, said goodbye to a longtime member, John Shealy, at 97. Well, I showed up on, on Tuesday, and I was wearing on that day a little bit different clothing than I wear other days. I walked in, I was wearing a black suit, white shirt, black tie. Now, On that day, I get a lot of compliments about how nice I look. I mean, there are a group of people who, you know, rather than saying, why don't you wear a suit on Sunday, they say, you look really nice today. So they had, it's positive reinforcement. Now, I don't think Tuesday I got suddenly better looking than I looked on Monday. But everyone thinks I look better. Why is that? Because I'm wearing what seems appropriate for the occasion. And if you go to a wedding, I've been in weddings where the guys were literally in jeans. I've been in other weddings where it's very formal. You want to know what to wear, what's appropriate to the occasion. Well, this moment, this man is the climax of this parable. It's also the hardest part to understand. Where do these guests get their wedding clothes? I mean, they're out on the streets moments before, and now they're in here and everyone has the right outfit except for one person. Now, there are various theories about that. One theory is like, don't know, don't worry about it. Well, that's not super helpful. Another group says, well, clearly, the king gave them their clothes as they walked in. And so they got their clothing from the king himself. A third group says, well, we don't know that. Probably most people would have, you know, a garment at home. So they went home and changed. They're out, you know, kind of in their work clothes. They get invited to the wedding. They go home and change and they show up at the wedding. Well, at the end of the day, we don't really know for sure. But what do we know for sure? Everyone there is wearing what they're supposed to, but one man is not. Now, why is it that he's not wearing the right clothes? It's because for whatever reason, he has refused to put them on. Garments are available to everyone. This man will not put it on. Well, we have already seen that the king is pretty patient. He's patient with the guests he invites, and here he's gentle with this man, and he calls him friend. He approaches him and says, hey, friend, what happened to your wedding suit? But the man has no good answer. So the man is tied up and thrown out into the outer darkness and with weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are phrases that indicate how terrible this man's fate is. This phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, is used five times in Matthew, and it always pictures ultimate judgment, ultimate rejection. So, with all this said, what in the world does this mean? Well, let's track back to where clothing comes from. If you know your Bible at all, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. Now, they're walking around, and what are they wearing? Nothing. Because they're clothed in the beauty, the innocence, the righteousness of God. They exist in this perfect relationship with their creator. But by the time we come to chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Adam and Eve sin, and in sinning, they break their relationship with the creator. They break creation itself, and they also break this boundary, this righteousness that God has clothed them in. And so then what do they do? They attempt to cover themselves in fig leaves, Genesis tells us. And then they run and they hide in the trees from God. Then God confronts them in their sin and then God himself provides appropriate clothing for them. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So what we have here is we have the original righteousness provided to Adam and Eve by God at creation. Then we have the breaking of this righteousness when Adam and Eve sin. Then there's an effort by Adam and Eve to clothe themselves, to provide their own righteousness, but it doesn't work because there is no proper covering for unrighteousness without an atoning sacrifice. They attempt to make up for their unrighteousness. When righteousness is broken, though, God himself must provide the covering, and he did For Adam and Eve. Well, if we then follow this metaphor throughout Scripture, it traces like a thread throughout the Bible. It highlights for us the redemptive work of Jesus in the fruit that his work produces in us. Theologians call this justification and sanctification, or you might call it positional righteousness, who God declares us to be in Christ and progressive righteousness or progressively growing in Christ. In other words, when we place our faith in Jesus, God looks at us, and for the sake of Christ, he says, not guilty. And not only does he remove our guilt, he credits to us all the goodness, all the righteousness, all the beauty of Jesus. And he credits to Jesus our sin, our debt, our guilt. So God declares us righteous. Now look at me. Am I righteous? I'm not righteous. Me, I'm not. But I'm covered. I'm robed in righteousness. And then a relationship with Christ means I progressively grow in righteousness. That's what you call sanctification. It's progressive righteousness. It's growing in this character. Well, the people of Israel were to be holy people in a holy land, led in worship by holy men, priests, in a holy building, the temple. And yet if you look at the old covenant, does this work? It doesn't work because the system is broken, because the people are broken like Adam and Eve attempts to cover themselves in the garden. So there's this gap. There's the unholiness, the unrighteousness of human beings. There's the holiness, the perfectly righteous standard of God, and there's a great gap in between, and we cannot meet this gap. Yet into this gap steps God himself. He bridges the gap through Christ. Isaiah 61.10 tells us that God covers us with a robe of salvation, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. In Zechariah chapter 3, there's a high priest. His name is Joshua. Now, this is a different Joshua, but the high priest Joshua is standing before the Lord, and he stands there in his iniquity, in his sin, and his sin is pictured because he has dirty clothes, then the angel of the Lord speaks to this priest Joshua, and takes away his iniquity and then clothes him with these garments of salvation, clean garments and a picture of what Christ does for us in salvation. But then God speaks to Joshua. and he says that the evidence that this robing, that this clothing has happened is the way that Joshua lives. The Lord says, "Walk in my ways." and I will give you the right of access. So the evidence that God has clothed Joshua is the way that Joshua then lives in relation to the Lord. And then one day, same passage, God says he's going to remove the sin of everyone, remove the sin of the land through his servant, he calls him the branch. That is Jesus. He's looking forward to the day when Jesus is going to provide this for all people. Well, then in Galatians 3, Paul tells us that to trust Christ is to be robed in the righteousness of Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Well, then in Colossians 3, in light of what Jesus has done, we've been robed in Christ. Paul then says, put on then as God's chosen ones, compassion, hearts, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So there's the garment, the robe that is Jesus, and then there's this ongoing process of putting on a Christ-likeness. Or in the book of Revelation, we come to Revelation 7. We find what people, what, what are people wearing in heaven? What clothing are they wearing in heaven? Revelation 7:13. Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? These are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus is what cleanses us from sin. We are robed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's the only acceptable clothing. But, Revelation 19, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we are clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what God's Word is teaching, you cannot separate faith in Christ from a life lived with Christ, from walking with Christ. You see, when we stand before God, the only sufficient clothing will be being robed in the robe of Christ's righteousness. I mean, God not only covers our sin through Christ, he also offers us progressively, he scrubs our nature cleaner and cleaner. Brian, can you bring up my next point? I'm not sure why it's not popping up here, but it's not. When we stand before God, the only sufficient clothing will be the robe of Christ's righteousness. So there's something that God makes us, and then there's this progressive growing in righteousness. It's like this. We call this imputation. Now, my wife told me i got to wash this when I go home, but I brought a white sheet, a clean white sheet from home. What happens is when we place our faith in Christ, God robes us in Christ. So God looks at us, and what does he see? He sees Jesus. God looks at you when you place your faith in Jesus, and he sees Jesus. Now, are we Christ? No, we're not. Underneath, it don't look so good. Underneath, we're still this growing, changing, sinning person. But God looks at us and he sees perfection. He sees righteousness. He sees holiness that we haven't earned, that we don't deserve, that we can never deserve, that we can never earn. And yet God looks at us and he's credited all of Christ's righteousness to us. And so we show up at heaven and God sees us and he says, will he let us in? He sees Christ and he says, come on in. He welcomes us for the sake of his son, Jesus. Now at the same time, there's this relationship with Christ. Now, this isn't really a hard and fast rule, as in what we have written down, but it might be written, I'm not sure. It's kind of unwritten in our house. And that is, when we're eating, don't touch dad's shirt. I like peanut butter and jelly too, but I don't want to wear it on my sleeve. I really like my kids. I'm like, let's wash your hands first. And so when we eat, you know, and Joseph gets down, I'm like, all right, hey, 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 hey. you know, let, let's scrub that off. Because the, the garment will pick up this the stain of this, the contamination, the, the, the peanut butter and jelly or whatever it is. So, and we're going to mix metaphors here, so we'll see how this works. But so God looks at us and he sees Jesus, perfect always acceptable sacrifice, Jesus offered in our place. But at the same time, God is progressively cleansing our old nature. The stain of sin. So in terms of our eternal destiny, nothing can change that. Nothing can stain or soil or sacrifice what Christ has done. And yet... We still have this internal battle with us, with who we are, what Scripture calls our old self, or our old man, the one we're to put off. It's like, don't get that PB and J on me. You, you, you have to resist the, the, the contamination, the stain of sin. So when it comes to justification, or what we come sometimes call salvation, we are positionally righteous. We are in Christ righteous. Nothing can change that. Nothing can make us any more righteous than we already are for the sake of Jesus. Can you be more perfect than perfect? No, and that's who you are in Christ. At the same time, there's what we call progressive righteousness, progressive sanctification, and you cannot separate the two. If you are in Christ, you will grow progressively more and more like Christ. You will put on compassion, meekness, uh, righteousness, patience, these kinds of things. We progressively reflect the character of Christ rather than our own corrupt character. So since the fall, this is the flow. Since Adam and Eve, broken righteousness, we've attempted to clothe ourselves. God provides clothing through Christ. And then in Christ, we progressively, when we're in Christ, put on Christ-like righteousness. So, forgot we were in the middle of a parable. Back to our story here for a minute. When the king confronts the wedding guest, he's confronting a man who neither possesses the positional righteousness of Christ, and who is also not growing in Christ's likeness, demonstrating the fruit of a relationship with Christ. You see, Christ like character will not save us, but we will, if we put on Christ, also put on Christ like character. Justification always flows into sanctification. You cannot separate the two. In fact, one man said, if you attempt to separate justification and sanctification, you tear Christ apart. Justification, salvation, always flows into sanctification, discipleship, which always flows in then to glorification. It's Romans 8.30 says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So if we track back to Jesus' parable here, the mission of Jesus is to Israel first. Guys, I'm having all kinds of issues. Can you track back, 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 two slides? There you go, thank you. The mission of Jesus is to Israel first. So to think through this parable one more time, the guests who won't come, that's Israel. I mean, through the prophets, God has invited Israel to come, then he sends his son. We saw this in the parable of the farmers last week. But then through Christ, God invites everyone, all nations to come. Matthew 20, 18, go there and make disciples of all nations. But everyone who comes has to be wearing the same thing. That is Christ. That is Jesus. If you show up at this wedding without Christ, you don't get in. When Jesus shows up, the guests reject him. So the father sends the son to Israel, but Israel rejects the son. The sun sends us to the world so that people might receive the Son. So in the flow of history, Jesus is signaling that, that his kind of redemptive target is expanding from a nation to all nations. Well, what is Jesus's consistent condemnation of the Jewish leaders? They fail to bear the fruit of righteousness. They don't live in a way that shows that Jesus is their king. They claim to know God, but they don't live in a way that shows they know God. You see, the root of faith always produces the fruit of good works. In other words, when we trust Jesus, we look like Jesus because we're looking to Jesus. We become what we behold. We become like what we worship. The man without the wedding garment is a man who says he belongs but he doesn't have the clothing to prove it. He's a man who says he knows Jesus, but he doesn't have a life to back it up. Man, if there's ever been a culture that this speaks into, it's our culture, isn't it? Amen. I mean, we have a community filled with people who know the basics of the gospel. To trust Christ and have your sins forgiven means life forever with God. We trust Him and we can be saved. But many of those same people who know these gospel words don't live as if these words are true. That not only did Christ die, he died to save us from sin, from a life of sinning. But I mean, God's word offers no assurance to those who claim faith but don't have the life to show that they have faith. 1 John 1 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in, walk in darkness, we lie. Don't practice the truth. I mean, to believe that praying a prayer will save us while actually rejecting what God requires of us is to miss the entire flow of Jesus' teaching. It's like saying you can be clean without being cleansed. It's like saying you can know Christ without looking like Christ. It's like saying you can have positional righteousness without progressive righteousness. And God's word says you cannot separate the two. You cannot separate who you are in Christ from the way you live out this relationship. So let's do something just for a minute here. Don't assume that we couldn't be the guy without the right clothes. Don't assume it couldn't be us. There's a common teaching in Christian circles that can damn souls to hell. So what sometimes we call easy believism. And it's that you pray a prayer, you get a ticket, you go to heaven, and nothing else you do matters. That's not what God's Word teaches. It is true that if you trust Christ, you can get to heaven and nothing else matters. But it's why people living sometimes in clearly sinful relationships say things like, once saved, always saved. Is that true? Yes, it's true. But it's also true that God's Word says, once truly saved, always saved. Like, there's a connection. I mean, the last thing we want to do is lead people who know Christ to doubt that they know Christ. But the other thing we don't want to do is lead people who don't know Christ to think that they know Christ. I mean, Jesus' closing words are striking. For many are called, he says, but few are chosen. Literally, many are called, but few are elect. You see, the gospel is offered to all, but not everyone responds. So how do we know who God's children are? When they respond to the gospel call. When they respond to the shepherd's voice in repentance and faith, as the Spirit of God draws them. Have you placed your faith in Christ and in Christ alone to save you? Have you trusted Him? Does your life demonstrate the fruit of that? Relationship. If you don't know Jesus, would you trust him today? He's the only acceptable clothing in God's kingdom. You see, the first Adam sinned, stripping himself of his God given righteousness. The second Adam came, stripping himself of his divine glory. The first Adam had to be clothed because of his guilt and shame. The second Adam willingly clothed himself in our guilt and shame. The first Adam went and hid in the trees. He attempted to clothe himself. The second Adam hung on a tree, naked for all to see. The first Adam brought condemnation. The second Adam removes all condemnation through Christ. The second Adam declares that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first Adam brought condemnation, the second Adam delivers us from condemnation. Or as Paul put it in Romans 5, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For where sin abounded, and it did, grace has abounded more. As bad as we are, as terrible as sin is, as terrible as God's judgment against sin is, the grace of God has abounded more through the free gift of Jesus Christ. That's why we come to God boldly. That's why we come to God confidently. Not because of who we are. You look under there, you look at anyone. You don't want to see what's under there. But through Christ, we can boldly, confidently approach the throne of grace anytime because God is no longer our judge. God is our dad. And dad wants to hear from his kids. Through Christ, we can do all things, including enter the very throne room of God. Let's take a moment now. We'll respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's go to him now.